to the word of God and to be fed the truth this morning, uh, to gather wisdom from the Old Testament instruction from the, the Old Testament that shows us Christ and points us to him. Lord, we get to see Jesus in this passage in a special way this next couple of weeks. And there's so many, many issues here that we could be distracted from the main point. So I pray that you would feed us now according to your word and show us Jesus. That it wouldn't just be an opportunity to be packed full of information, but we would truly be changed as the Holy Spirit drives this passage, drives the glories of Christ into our hearts deeply, that it would change us, it would change our relationships, it would change our discouragements, that our eyes would truly be moved away from the things that are passing away and put on the one who holds us fast now and forever that truly Jesus would be our satisfaction, our contentment. And seeing him, we would continue to run after him with all that we have. Lord, this is such an important hour. I can't underestimate the, this opportunity it is to come to your word. Help us now. Help us to put things aside and Holy Spirit, speak to us from your word powerfully this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We're living in a culture that is absolutely filled with controversy. I was just talking to a brother last night about the controversial decisions that face many of us these days. Right around the corner. Controversy. All kinds of controversy, whether it's politics or it's health care, you name it. This world is filled with controversy. But controversy is, is not always a bad thing. In fact, sometimes controversy is, is sparked in, in the history of our lives and in the history of the church so that truth might shine forth. In fact, I would say this, I would offer to you that controversy is actually necessary in the plan of God. It's necessary. If you know anything about church history, you know <laughs> that, that truth was hammered out on the anvil of controversy all throughout church history. But Often, it's not just controversy, it's not just lively debate. Controversy, it, it can begin with controversy, but sometimes it leads to outright persecution. And controversy leads to opposition and misunderstanding and hatred and eventually a desire for vengeance. And this is what we see as we come to the book of Luke. This is what we're seeing as we come into Luke chapter 6. 
opposition against Jesus is on the rise, and controversy has been brewing over the last few months in the ministry of Christ. I mean, the priests were shocked when a leper comes in saying, remember me? Covered with leprosy, now I'm cleansed. Well, how did God do this? Because only God can cleanse you of leprosy. Only God can heal leprosy. It was him. It was Jesus. The priests heard it firsthand. And so the Pharisees began showing up (laughs) right after that. And then Jesus says, Sir, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus actually forgives sins. God alone can forgive sins. And controversy is brewing. And then a notorious sinner named Matthew, a tax collector, the scum of Capernaum. Jesus calls him into full-time discipleship, and Matthew, filled with joy, hosts a party at his house, and he invites all kinds of other scumbag sinners like himself. And Jesus is there, the guest of honors. And the Pharisees are growing in their anger as the controversy brews. And then they said, okay, go and ask them. Someone else, not us, probably one of the scribes, asked them, why in the world do you not even fast and take this seriously? The disciples are eating and drinking a smile on their face. I don't know how Jesus even answered at that point. But the controversy is brewing as we come into John or into Luke chapter 6. The Pharisees are digging their heels in. They are absolutely content With their version of the law, they're absolutely content with offering their sacrifices day after day after day after day. And Jesus says, again and again, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then we come into John, into Luke chapter 6, and controversy absolutely explodes. It's been brewing, but it explodes over the most cherished of all Jewish observances. Controversy over the pinnacle of their law. Controversy over the sign of their covenant. Controversy in Luke chapter 6, 1 through 11, ignited around the Sabbath. A test case for two conflicting ministries. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. If you're not there, let's find verses 1 through 11. As we see this Sabbath controversy in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 6. And we're going to look at this text the next couple of weeks, the Sabbath controversy, and we're going to see that there's 
One central message to this passage, and I think it's often missed, but I want you to hear it now and we'll unpack it in the next couple of weeks. The divine Son of Man is working. The divine Son of Man is working for our good by showing mercy to needy people. The divine Son of Man is at work to show mercy for needy people. He is none other than the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's read about him, and let's follow along. I'll read our passage in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone and gave it to his companions? And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I asked you, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Two Sabbath accounts here. First is in the field, and the second is in the synagogue. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Big outline of the next two weeks. You have it in your bulletin, if you have a bulletin handout. We're going to look today in verses 1 through 5 at the Lord of the Sabbath. That the Lord of the Sabbath grants mercy in the field. The Lord of the Sabbath grants mercy in the field. And then next week... Verses 6 through 11, the Lord of the Sabbath grants mercy in the synagogue. And, I, and I'm hoping that, that we absolutely see Jesus as we've never seen him before in these next two passages. That we see Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath and what all of that means. And that our passion in seeing his person, we enter into his work of mercy. We enter into his 
heart of compassion, not the ritual and self-righteousness of external religion, but we enter in to true Christianity in a deep and powerful way. That, I, we have to take two weeks to, to let this unfold. There's a lot here. So today we look at the Lord of the Sabbath granting mercy in the field, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 under four headings. Okay, we're just going to walk right through it. First, we're going to look at the setting. Number one, the setting. Verse 1. Look at your text, Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. So the setting is Jesus and his disciples out in some obscure field, walking through the land. You can see the beauty of the rolling hills. Going from town to town in their ministry. A little hungry. As they're walking, they're grabbing some grain and getting a quick meal. And it's the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is a day of rest. It's the day of rest. That's what the word Sabbath means. It means to rest or to cease. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Verse 8 of Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Are we on the same page? The Sabbath is a day of rest, right? In the Jewish calendar, one day a week. Were we there? From the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath was to be a day of joyful worship, not a day of gloomy burden. That was God's heart. In the Old Testament, which I just read from, from Exodus, the Old Testament wasn't trying to put a huge burden of sadness on keeping of the Sabbath. It's the Pharisees and the rabbis and the scribes that have piled on the Old Testament that have brought the burden. Now, listen to this. They had added, the scribes, the rabbis, and the Pharisees, added to the Old Testament Scripture Sabbath 39 articles. 39 articles. 39 classes of work, which included all kinds of strange burdens. It was oppressive. It was downright bizarre. Let me give you some examples that I read from different scholars of those extra 39 articles. You could read it yourself. In the oral tradition of the Jewish law called the Mishnah. Okay, here's one. 
Okay, not the Bible, but here's their extras. One was not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. Or after seeing a gray hair, you would be tempted to pull it out, which would be work. That was a rule. Here's another one. You could spit on the Sabbath. Okay, thanks. You could spit on the Sabbath right into the dirt, but you had to be careful not to take your sandal and somehow stomp on your spittle or else at that moment you're cultivating the ground and you're doing work. Let me give you another one. I could go on and on. But here's one of the debates they would have. Here's a debate. Here's a classic debate about the Sabbath. Here's one of the debates. Suppose a man has a wooden leg. Okay, suppose a man has a wooden leg. Scott knows where I'm going with this. Suppose a man has a wooden leg. If his, here's what they're debating. If his house caught fire, could he carry it out of the house? Do you really think that gets to the heart of the Sabbath? The heart of Christ? Well, in the Mishnah, as I said, three of those 39, at least one category of those 39, were reaping, threshing, and winnowing, right? If you're a farmer and wheat, reaping, threshing, and winnowing. And the Pharisees have got the disciples of Jesus Christ, on a triple violation. Aha! We got you three ways. When they picked the heads of grain, they reaped. They threshed and winnowed when they rubbed them in, in their hands and this little husk caught in the wind and they had the part to eat and then they ate. Some would argue a quadruple violation of the Sabbath. Right then and there. As point of fact, the Old Testament's clear. The disciples didn't sin by stealing someone's grain as they're walking through. I want to clear that up. You could walk through someone else's grain field. It's kind of fascinating. Just listen to Deuteronomy 23, verse 25. Just listen. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So the problem was not what the disciples did. The problem was when the disciples did it, that they did it on the, are we, with, are we there? For the setting. All right, let's move on then from the setting to the accusation. Number two, the accusation in verse two. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? I think this is so funny. I want you to picture this. Jesus and his disciples, they're minding their own business. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They're roaming between towns. They're, you know, they're in a field, right? Maybe there's a, but here's the Pharisees. They're there. They're always watching them. They're sneaking up on them. They're sneaking around, following around. Can you just see them hiding behind a tree by the field? 
the sea. Oh, whoa, whoa, pop out. Whoa. Jesus is got a little grain in his mouth. Disciples have a little grain in their mouth. Caught you red-handed. What are you doing spying on these guys? Do they have Jesus trapped? Caught red-handed, violating the law of God? Well, they accuse who? Well, the text says, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The text says his disciples were picking the heads of the grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. Some of the, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And so they accuse his disciples for breaking the law of God. You know, it's just interesting to me, and I just want to encourage you with this. The disciples grabbing the weed as they go through. We don't even know if Jesus is doing it himself. The disciples are doing it. And they're being accused. Their face are stopped. Who do you want to defend you? Do you want to defend yourself? Or would you like Jesus to do the talking? Yes, you got it. You know, I just was strangely encouraged by this. These are the attendants of the bridegroom, we found out, the disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus does the talking. You are the bride of Christ. You are united to him. He nourishes you. He cherishes you. He loves you with an everlasting love. Let him do the talking. Let him do the talking. And I'll tell you what, there is a great accuser of the brethren, as J.C. Ryle pointed out. What an observation this was. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, who accuses you, the bride of Christ, day and night. Don't answer him. Let Jesus do the talking. Let Jesus defend you. Oh, we struggle. Oh, we sin. Yes, we're not worthy. Yes, there's charges that could be written against us, but let Jesus do the talking. And I'll tell you, I'm so thankful that Jesus is my advocate, that he ever lives to intercede for me, that he is my great defender, that he is my great interceder, that he understands when others do not. And his blood has washed away my sin. Let Jesus do the talking and let him say, yes, it is true about Jeff, but I have canceled his sin with my blood. He is clothed in my righteousness. He has a new spirit within, and I will cause him to walk in my ways so that he turns from sin and trusts from me. I have prayed for him that his faith would not fail. Let Jesus do the talking because the accusations will come from the darkness. It's interesting as we move forward how Jesus answers the accusation. So glad that Peter didn't try it. Leave it to Jesus to do the talking. Well, certainly Jesus had violated, and his disciples, at least his disciples, had violated the additional 39 articles, right, that were piled on the scripture, for sure. There's some controversy whether there whether he had violated the, the, the Sabbath law of that day. But what I think is really interesting is Jesus doesn't say, look, 
Haven't you read your Bibles? I haven't violated the Sabbath. He does that a little bit, but that's not his main argument. I want you to see how he answers this accusation. It's much more than perhaps we would do defending ourselves. And this gets to the heart of our passage, number three, the dilemma. The dilemma in verses three and four. So Jesus puts the Pharisees, his accusers, into a dilemma where they have no way to answer him. No way. Watch this. Look at his answer. He answers by telling a story about King David from the Old Testament saying, hey, guys, Pharisees, something like this, something like this is kind of familiar to me when I go back to the Bible. Something like this has happened before. Look at verse 3. And Jesus answering them said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, that's the temple, and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful to, for anyone to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? Well, Jesus has them right in the horns of a dilemma. Jesus said, why, why are they in trouble? Why does Jesus completely silence them with this answer? Let me tell you why. The Old Testament text never condemned David for what he did. David was hungry. David was the king. And David ate the bread of the presence, the consecrated bread from the tabernacle slash temple. And only that was lawful for the priest to eat, that the Old Testament never condemns David. Haven't you read it, Jesus says? So then he's quiet. I can just see him. So why are you condemning me and my disciples? They're like, uh-oh, because they know if they challenge Jesus, then they're challenging King David and his actions from the Old Testament. If you're going to, look, Jesus says, if you're going to condemn me and my disciples, then you have to condemn David and his men. What say you to this? If David was not condemned, how much more am I not condemned the greater David, the Messiah, the one who you're supposed to be longing for, longing for. The greater David is here, the ultimate and final Davidic king to which your own law appointed is here. You're expecting him, the Messiah. You didn't condemn the shadow. You would condemn the substance? And then, here's what he's saying. And I can, I can see him having a trembling lip out of sorrow for these men. Listen. The Old Testament itself, in this case, men, Pharisees, 
it's, it's willing to put aside ceremonial symbols for a time and to set those aside in the case of urgent need. In, in this case it, of David, he was in need. David and his men were hungry. They were running from Saul and they were starving. This is King David. What David did was not technically lawful. Only the priest could eat bread. The letter of the law was technically not followed by David. But the Old Testament doesn't condemn him for this. And Jesus is quoting this because he's trying to dig into their heart. He's trying to expose their, their hypocrisy and their silliness and their selfishness and just how sadistic it is to have the king of Israel and his men starve to keep some ceremonial observance. How sick is that? That is not true religion, Jesus says. Don't you think the heart of God is to show mercy and meet needs that some of the ceremony and external restrictions will give way? Don't you think, men, that the intent of the law was to mercifully meet needs? Don't you think, men, that the heart of compassion and mercy, these are the weighty things of the law that you have strained out and you leave in the dust to do your external tithings and to be seen by men? These needy things, mercy itself is at the very heart of the Sabbath. Not nitpicking externals at the expense of needs of men. So the first part of his answer shows what he is doing has precedent in the Old Testament law itself and the scriptures. And that meeting needs mercifully. That mercy triumphs over judgment. And this interpretation is confirmed if you're not certain. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 through 7, I'll just read this quickly. You can turn there if you want, but this is a parallel passage and see how Jesus argues the same thing in Matthew 12, 3 through 7. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? Listen, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Now, verse 5 of Matthew 12. Or have you not read in the law that, the, that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent because they're working hard on Sunday, Saturday? Then look at what Jesus says in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 12. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You would, have, you would not have condemned the innocent. I think we're on to it in the interpretation of the passage. Jesus hardly even argues. Hey, guys, I haven't broken the law. No, that's not even his point. His point is to show who he is and what he came to do. His point is to use this controversy as a springboard to talk 
about how the Son of Man came and took upon this stuff and dwelt among the muck of sinners and came to needy, helpless, hopeless sinners to save them, to show mercy upon them, that this is the work of God. This is the very food that my Father has sent me to do. I have come to do His work. He desires to show them mercy. And so that leads us then to our final heading, number five, where he really lays it down. He lays down, number five, the truth. And I cannot believe what Jesus says next. Put on your seatbelts and your thinking caps. I cannot believe what he says. I do believe it, but I cannot believe it. Verse 5, I cannot believe it. He says this, you want to know the real truth? You want me to get to the heart of it? Here it is. He says this, I, I call the shots on the Sabbath. I call the shots. Verse 5, and he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, let me say literally, let me read it in the Greek. Lord is of the Sabbath, the Son of Man. Lord is so fronted, it doesn't even read well. Lord of the Sabbath. Lord is the Son of Man. Jesus is clearly saying, here I am. I am Lord, capital L. O-R-D, I am Yahweh in the flesh. I am the Son of Man. I am the divine Son of Man, the one that Daniel prophesied. I am the one coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men from every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Lord is of the Sabbath, the Son of Man. He's basically saying this, I am the Lord who created the law. It came from my voice. It's my word. I am the Lord who understands the law. I am the Lord who fulfills the law. I am the Lord who reappropriates the law. I am the Lord who expands the law. I am the Lord that can do whatever I want with the law. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. This is precisely what was happening. And we have good precedent for this interpretation. If we turn to John chapter 5 and read the rest of the passage. Go to John chapter 5. And I want to pick it up in verse 8. Now watch this. Hold your finger back in Luke, but go to John chapter 5. Okay? In John chapter 5, we know what's happening there. Jesus heals a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, but he does it on the Sabbath, and he has to pick up his pallet. doesn't make them happy. The guy's working. No congratulations for being he healed after 38 years of misery. No. Why'd you pick up your pallet? Let's pick it up in verse 8. Jesus said to him, are you there? Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. 
Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Now watch these words. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. Now, keep re- here we go. Now, where Jason left off, we begin. Verse 12, watch this. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? Verse 13, but the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now look at this. Verse 16, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus Why? Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Look at Jesus' answer. But, verse 17, but he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, verse 18, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Stop there. Jesus in John chapter 5 speaks of his relationship to the father and his right to work on the Sabbath if his father does. Okay, let me ask you a question. Does God keep the Sabbath? That's the question. If God rests on the Sabbath, who holds the universe together? Does he become a Sabbath breaker? Does God? And they actually talked about the consensus among the rabbis in that day is that God does work on the Sabbath or else God's sustaining creation by his providential hand would cease and the world would disintegrate. So yes, God does work. But they said, four eminent rabbis said at the end of the first century said, okay, yes, God works constantly, but he cannot be charged with breaking the Sabbath law since, number one, the entire universe is his domain, and therefore he would never carry anything outside of it. And number two, God fills the whole world and lifts nothing to a height greater than his own stature. And, then number, and, and, and it goes on and on. But God is not breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus knows that they believe this. That God can't break the Sabbath. And so he says, ah, my father is working actively, continuously right now. And I am working continuously. Same word. He's equating the father's work with his work. That is his self-defense. He does not argue that, I'm not really technically violating the Old Testament. He's saying, no, no, if God can daily work through his providence to sustain nature, then I can work daily to work. They got it exactly right that Jesus was claiming to be equal with God, to be one with the Father, to be God in the flesh. He is working He is working. And I'll tell you, what is the work of Jesus? 
The work of Jesus, the God-man, is to seek and to save lost and needy sinners, to show them mercy. He has come. He has taken upon flesh. The curse has cursed our work. We cannot work our way in. Jesus must go to work. Jesus must work in our place. And Jesus has come, and he has gone to work to save sinners like us. And oh, indeed, he works upon the Sabbath, for he is the God-man the Lord of the Sabbath. He calls the shots. Thank you very much. Oh, I wish we had a hunger. David had a hunger for bread. I wish we had a hunger for the bread of life. I wish you had a hunger for the bread of life. So that when you eat that bread, your deepest spiritual needs, believing in Christ, full cleansing, peace with God, clothed with his righteousness, your resume, resume stacked in Jesus Christ. No sin. Perfect righteousness. Not your righteousness, the righteousness of another. At peace with God, in his presence, at rest. Oh, would Jesus be your Sabbath rest. He has come to be your Sabbath rest. He is the great Sabbath rest for believers. And the Pharisees instead, they raged against their rest. They raged against it. They put on, they put on a show to prove themselves before people, and they missed mercy. They missed mercy. They missed their Messiah. Have you? Have we? Even as professing believers, are we missing our Messiah Monday through Saturday? Are we missing him? Are we missing his rest that he has earned in our place? Well, one commentator said, well, quotes, don't make your religious rules more important than Jesus himself. Now listen to me. When we are comparing ourselves with other people, we are missing our Sabbath rest. When we, when we try to earn favor with God, even though we believe in the cross, when we don't really believe it, but are trying to do and do and do that he might be pleased with us in the end, we are rejecting our Sabbath rest. When we are living in the fear of man, trying to do good before our mom and dad or in front of our pastor or trying to put on a show in our Bible study, may we stop rejecting our Sabbath rest and rest in Jesus and be able to say, I don't need to perform here. I need by faith to rest in the work of Jesus in my place. I mean, if what would happen if we remembered in this politically crazy world what would happen if we remembered in that, by that fire in the cul-de-sac with our neighbors? What would happen if we remembered in the hallway of our high schools and our colleges kids? Or what would happen if we remembered when we're driving on those freeways that mercy triumphs over judgment, that we are fine in Christ, that he's got us, that we can rest in him? I feel like we forget in our Sabbath rest. I feel like we might be more like the Pharisees than we think. 
I'm telling you, showing mercy isn't going to make you a Christian. But true Christianity, true faith leads to a merciful heart for the needy all around us. Let me just speak clear. Let's put aside fleshly nitpicking and be Holy Spirit nice. Was it nice to tell the man with a shriveled hand, I'm sorry, but you can't be healed today? What's that? It's not the heart of Christ. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Oh, brothers and sisters, the people around us are frantic. We're falling into it. Don't be frantic. Have faith. Have faith in the finished work of Christ. People around us have never rested one minute of their whole life in the finished work of Christ. Perhaps in the chaos, like Jesus, we can turn controversy and even conflict into an opportunity to proclaim the unbelieving good news that the divine Son of Man is working for your good by showing mercy to needy sinners like you and like me. He's working, all right, for needy sinners. How? I'll tell you what. Jesus worked for 33 years to undo your curse. He was obedient to the law in your place. Perfectly. He worked perfectly. He earned your righteousness. It's his righteousness. He gives it to you freely by faith. He worked all the way to the end, not only in living a perfect life of obedience, but by hanging there, bleeding upon the tree. His work was not done, and he worked for six hours and bare the full weight of the wrath of God, the penalty of every sin that you have ever committed. He worked upon the tree, and then it was finished. The work was finished. He had accomplished the work that he had come to do. He had done the work necessary to secure your redemption. And he said, did he not, as he gave up his spirit, it is finished. Literally, it is accomplished. Make no mistake about it. It's no accident that Jesus brings up the consecrated bread. I'll tell you why. It's no mistake that he brings up the consecrated bread because one greater than the temple is here. The consecrated bread was 12 loaves of unleavened bread, two rows of six set on a table of gold. And you know what the consecrated bread is literally? Are you ready? The bread of the face. Or, best translation, the bread of the presence. Why? Because that bread was placed in, in the holy place next to the veil where the Ark of the Covenant was and the very presence of God was found, the bread in the presence. And sure enough, 
The veil is there saying, stay, stay out, keep out. You have not done enough. You have not worked hard enough. You have failed. Keep out. But the Lord of the Sabbath has come, and he has worked, and he finished that work, and he rested on the Sabbath, his body in the grave. His work for us was accomplished. He ceased working. He finished your salvation. And just as the bread of the presence was torn by the first David who hungered, so also was the body of Jesus so also the body of Jesus was torn as the greater David who thirsted and said, it is finished. And when he said, it is finished, and his body was broken, the veil from top to bottom by the bread of the presence was torn. And we could enter into the very presence of God through the finished work of Christ. For the Son of Man worked until he himself had done what is necessary to earn your access to God. He worked. He finished it. Praise God that we can now enter into the presence of God with joy and confidence in the finished work of Christ because his body was broken for us. Praise God that the Lord of the Sabbath has ushered our way into the presence of God. And that presence of God, there's not fasting and gloominess and burden. No, I'll tell you something about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. In the presence of God, listen, there is rest. Brothers and sisters, rest. Rest in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's now turn, I think appropriately, to the Lord's table. Father, I thank you for this passage. Now as we come to continue really in this passage, 